Welcome to Bill Roden on Sports. Taking you inside clubhouses, locker rooms, and boardrooms. Legendary sports columnist Bill Roden gets inside the heads and beneath the veneer of the men and women who play and own the games we love. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Bill Roden on Sports. Here with my friend and co-host, Jamal Murphy. Good to be here. Yes, uh, and um, Pat in the back. Pat, the sound guy. Hello. Yeah, and uh, yeah, a special guest, a good friend, tremendous colleague, um, great columns, one of the greatest columns in the country. Uh, My very proud to say my my colleague, uh, the great George Vesey. Uh, I'm going to read his resume in just a minute, but uh, it's really, really, really a pleasure, George, to have you on uh, on the podcast. So welcome. Oh, it's nice to be here, and I have to admit that you already gave me my big laugh of the season a couple of weeks ago when you wrote in your column about college bowl games. You said that maybe your attitude toward, toward college bowl games was because you went 0 for 3 right. as, as a defensive back at Morgan State. So this was like the rosebud in Citizen Kane, you know. Now, now we understand the, the tortured psyche of the man. Uh, you know, yeah, George sent me this. I said, George sent me that note. I said, why does people really read this stuff? <laughs> I may be the only one, but you gave me a, What were the three bowl games? They were... Um, one was uh, my sophomore year. We went down to to uh, play in the Astrodome. We played Texas Southern in the Astrodome, right. and they had this guy. You know, I, it was, I'm a sophomore. It was my first year starting, and it was absolutely the worst year I had ever had in sports. I was a right cornerback, and it's like I was giving up a touchdown every single game. <laughs> and so this game, of course, Texas Southern, and this is like 1969, and you know, you still had like places like. Texas Southern, Grambling, these places were loaded. Jackson State, you know. So Texas Southern had this guy named uh, Kenny Burrow. Uh, in the pros, he was like double zero. And this guy had a 10-year career in the NFL, and he was like all-American, whatever. He's a senior. And so, in fact, when I, I remember we got to Houston on the little program. Hey, Kenny Burrow was on the cover. <laughs> he was on the cover of the damn thing. And so, and so the way, you know, back then the way we scouted, you know, Brute, you know, Brute was like 80 years old, was like the scout. And Brute was, ah, the boy's no good. He wears white shoes. All you gotta do is hit him on the head, you know, that kind of shit. So, of course, you know, he, 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 he beat me three times for touchdown. And I wrote some of this last year when it was all the controversy about Richard Sherman because they were talking about talking trash. I said, listen, if you're a defensive back, I have no mercy on wide receivers because they talk trash. And I talked about this game. Kenny Burrow, he was beating me so bad in one, he ran some pattern and he dropped it. He picked up the ball, came over and he said, I dropped that <laughs> just to let me know that I had nothing to do with breaking up the play. So that was that one. Then the second one was um, my junior year. I mean, we had a pretty good team. We played um, uh, Rutgers. We played Rutgers in some kind of game up at Piscataway. And in fact, who's the um, you know who's the columnist at uh, at the New York uh, New you know uh, Jerry Eisenberg. Jerry Eisenberg. So Jerry reminded me all the time. I uh, set that game up, you know, and and all the, oh, that was the charity game that they played. Yeah, it was it was a charity game, and season. it was certainly charity because we. we <laughs> I was very charitable that game. 
Uh, yeah, there's some charity game in, in, in Piscataway, right? Or was it? I thought it was in Newark because he's a Newark guy. You know, he. It, 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 I, mean, I had no idea. Yeah. Again, that's I'm, I'm kind of. I know how the kids feel. You just get in the bus yeah. and you just go right wherever, wherever they play. That's where we go. And they they and so Rutgers, so they beat us. And I remember, you know, of course, me he turned everything to a racial game. You know, talk about <laughs> all the black players. Why do you go here? You know, how you come you got the black? Anyway, so they beat us um, like. 44, 33, something like that. Then the last game, the Boardwalk Bowl in Delaware. We played the University of Delaware. And uh, we played inside in the Boardwalk Bowl. Lost that game. So, you know, my three postseason games, I was always coming away kind of like, yeah, not, not too good. Well, yeah. I'm sorry for you, yeah. but but it gave me a good laugh. So that's, <laughs> that's all that matters. You slip on a banana peel and uh, you, you fulfilled your mission. So, so George, um, man, first of all, how, how are you enjoying? I was gonna say, well, let, let's, let's let's just let me just read just a couple of George to to many people who, who are reading this who've been reading George uh, for, for decades, actually reading his column in the New York Times for decades, uh, and then there there are books. Um, uh, let me just read. I'm, I'm just gonna read. This. I do believe when we have a guest of means, I, I believe in reading stuff so people will know who we're talking about. So. So George has written about the FIFA World Cup. He's, he's a soccer expert. Uh, he's covered, how many Olympics have you covered? I want to say seven Summer Olympics and about four Winter Olympics. Wow. Um, George is the author of more than a dozen books, including Baseball, A History of, you know, every time I read these things, George, I'm telling you, I'm reading this stuff, and I'm like, you know, what am I doing with my career? <laughs> you know, so George has written <clears throat> more than a dozen books, including Baseball, A History of America's Favorite Game, and this really knocked me out when I first met you. I know, I had no idea. He wrote Loretta Lynn, Coal Miner's Daughter, with American country singer Loretta Lynn, which was made into an Academy Award-winning film, uh, Coal Miner's Daughter. And I want to get back to that, because I want to ask you, I mean, you must, still must be getting residuals on that, right? Uh, what are you, the FBI? <laughs> oh, sorry, IRS. sorry about that. Yeah, no, sorry. You know what? I, neither one do I want to even mention on this show. Um, well, anyway, yes. The answer is yes. Uh, Loretta, Loretta in my family was known as Aunt Loretta because mm. she put my the two girls through college. Oh, yeah. The, 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 the movie money came in at a time when I had girls getting ready to go to college. I don't have any of it anymore. They got good education. <laughs> right. And, you know, it's, it's a good use. It's, it's a great. Great. It, it really did. That's great. Because I want to ask you about that, too, because you've had such a, an eclectic career. I mean, you were doing religion at the time. You were just really doing a lot. But let me just read this, because I want to get back to the, the Loretta Lynn. So then you, um, you, you were the uh, national and religion reporter for the New York Times. Uh, you interviewed the Dalai Lama, the former British Prime Minister, uh, Minister Tony Blair, the American Christian evangelist Billy Graham. <laughs> I, I got to tell us about that. The, the, when I worked at the Baltimore Sun, you know, he has that column. He, what his mm. column was called, uh, uh, "My Answers" or something like that. And one of the people at the at, at, at the uh, at the Sun, she she wanted to kill it. She said, "What a minute! Answers, what are answers by Billy Graham? What questions by Jesus Christ?" <laughs> 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 anyway, and uh, in addition to assisting Loretta Lynn. George has also helped several other celebrities and high-profile celebrities write their autobiography, including American country singer Barbara Mandrell, uh, Chinese human rights activist Henry Wu. 
And his work in his in this field has ranged from co-writing credits to being listed as a contributor, as you were in Coal Miner's Daughter, to being listed as a consultant. And your baseball books cover several different periods of the game. I didn't realize you wrote all this stuff, George. In the Rivals, uh, in a book called Rivals, you cover the entire history of the Yankees-Red Sox rivalry from the first half of the century until recent years. He's also written books exclusively about modern baseball history, such as McGuire and Sosa and the home run record chase. Did you know they were on drugs? And it was, that was afterwards when you did No, that. I did not know. There were rumors going around. Um, you know, working at the Times, you don't go with rumors, and right. you, don't just, you don't just go off half-cocked. But the answer is no. I wish I had that, you know, like the the pitchers say, we wish I had the pitch back. <laughs> yeah. I wish I had that pitch back because really? I, I certainly fussed over them and, 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 and godded them up, as Red Smith used to say. And, and when you go back and look at it, I, I was surely, you know, I was making them more of a hero, even than they were at the <laughs> moment. But that was the mood I was in. You know, they were, they were, I had just seen out in Chicago, in uh, St. Louis, they had this great weekend together and, and McGuire broke the record and so was and they were friends and they were high fiving each right. other and it was a great scene and, and I mean they hit the home runs but knowing what you know now, I mean I've seen McGuire, I was at the uh, St. Patrick's Day hearing in Washington when he was being pushed by Harold Ford and uh, um, uh, the guy from Baltimore, uh, the, the prophet Elijah, you know, going after going after them. And, oh, lives are coming. And, yeah, and mm-hmm. and he 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 was so abject, just miserable. And and they said to him, Mister McGuire, don't you understand that you are losing your public recognition? I think I think uh, uh, Harold Ford said, you know, there's a bridge named for you or a section yeah, of the interstate right. named for you. Uh, could you see yourself losing that? I mean, that's that's how abject it was. So. You probably could see it coming. I wish I wish I'd been a little tougher on do, that do, one. Do you, do you feel? Uh, and again, there are more credits to come. But do you feel that 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 um, you were you were there was a fraud that was perpetrated in retrospect by by Sosa Manning by by Major League Baseball? You know that's a, that's a kind of a class action thought. But you know the the fraud was that they did something even at the start they weren't supposed to do. There were there were if not laws, there were policies in place that go back to Faye Vincent. And everybody knew it. That's why they didn't come out and say, oh, yeah, that's why McGuire went ballistic when uh, Steve Wilstein saw the, uh, the uh, Andro in his, in his locker, because Steve's a big, tall guy, as you know, and he's looking into McGuire's locker, and there's the stuff. So they, they were defensive about it. They, were, they weren't, they weren't uh, doing commercials for the stuff they were taking. <laughs> right. And, uh, yeah, they were... They were uh, sneaky about it, so sure, I do think they put one over on us. Mm-hmm. Then you wrote the um, uh, the Subway 2000 about the Mets and the New York Yankees Subway series that took place in 2000, and you also authored a chapter uh, of the literary hoax "Naked Came the Stranger." Now tell us about the "Naked Came the Stranger." Tell "Naked Came it. the Stranger" was when I was a, a kid at Newsday, and in our spare time, one of uh, two of the very talented guys, not in the sports department, came up with the idea of writing a hoax novel, of coming up with a plot or, or uh, characters, and then having individuals at the paper on their own write something using some of these characters. And of course, it was uh, Jacqueline Suzanne era and, and uh, dirty, dirty Books era. And so we all did it, and they 
put some of them together. Mine was exactly as I wrote it. And I won't say which one, but it's the cleanest <laughs> chapter. Because what did I know? <laughs> you know? So, so and, it, and a clean in the sense of insipid. You know, it's just silly. Right. And um, they put it together. They had it out. And for about a few months, they had somebody's uh, sister-in-law posing as the writer. She, the name was Penelope Ash. And she was... Uh, you know, somebody's sister-in-law. And so she was out there having written it. And then Jonathan Schwartz on the old WNEW-FM yep, yep, yep. had gotten a tip. And I'm driving up to Fairfield where the Giants were doing their practice. And I hear Jonathan doing his, whatever it was, 10 to 12, 12 to 2 show. And he said, and I have it on good faith. That, that book was written. Uh, oh, geez, Jonathan's going <laughs> to blow it. And I called him in the studio and I said, he said, it, is it true or not? And I, I wouldn't confirm it, but anyway, he, he blew it. <laughs> um, so then you wrote um, uh, a baseball, a history of America's favorite game. Uh, it's a concise history of the game of professional baseball. Then in 2011, 2011 I remember you, you being so relieved when you finished this, uh, ESPN published your Stan Musial, An American mm-hmm. Life, your bi- biography of Stan Musial, mm-hmm. which was which was out- outstanding. And then you, uh, you've written uh, Eight World Cups, My Journey Through the Beauty and the Dark Side of Soccer, uh, which is interesting because you wrote that before all this stuff kind of exploded all over the floor, right? I, I did. I mean, it was out there, and I have to give credit, um, as you as you know, that sometimes editors have good ideas, and <laughs> and this book editor had great idea. He picked up on things that I was saying, and uh, I, I did him a proposal. He was going to do the book, but I had just enough in there to raise his interest a little bit, and he said, "Don't be afraid to include the dark side." So. His phrase, and I said, "Well, I'm I'm as uh, as good a suck up as anybody," and so I, I I used it in the copy of the book, and I I did, and then he took it out and put it in the subtitle. So fortunately, when the scandal got worse and worse, I was coming out with a book that had the word "dark side" on the mm. thing. It wasn't any great. It was more his perception than mine to ask me to write about it. I was going to put some stuff in there. But I just put more because he asked. And sometimes writer, editors know what they want. The same thing happened in, this, in the uh, baseball book that I did where I had just a brilliant young, uh, young editor, Julia Chaffetz, who you know, asked me. She said, you know more. You're not telling the story. Give mm-hmm. me more. Did you ever meet Jackie Robinson? Tell me what it was like. And, you know, she pulled a better book. Well, so Paul Golub, the editor of the uh, – the uh, soccer book, he pulled it out of me uh, to make it better. So I was very happy that when the scandals really broke, that I was out there with the book. I mean, it didn't make it a bestseller per se, but it, it certainly got me on a lot of the talk shows and I was able to talk about soccer, you know, on the uh, you know, Brian Lehrer's of the world and people like that to go on. Mm. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Taking you inside the games we love. This is Bill Roden on Sports. Yeah, I want I want to get back to, to, to soccer too. Um, a lot of people don't know this, um, but you're 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 the older brother of Peter Vesey. Um, is that? I mean, I, mean, I, I know it's true, 
but a lot of people don't know that. They, they, yeah, I didn't yeah, know that. Well, there's, there's five of us, and mm-hmm. I'm the oldest. Pete's the, the middle. It's boy, girl, boy, girl, boy. So, yeah, Pete's four years younger than me and a very good basketball player at Malloy and could have played college basketball if he, you know, if he had. And um, I'm very proud of the great career he had. I mean, he's one of a kind. I mean, uh, uh, it, you know, we, we do our thing in the framework of the sports column was invented decades ago, mm. but Pete was like the first great basketball columnist, mm. the only one that, and he, because he played, he played in the Rucker, he had a team in the Rucker, you know, he'd be, he'd be saying, you know, okay, okay, Doc, sit down for two minutes, I'm going to play, he'd, he'd, <laughs> he'd, pull, he'd pull Julius off, <laughs> right. or, you know, Billy Paltz, and he, he was, he had that team, so he could play, and he had those kind of bones, um, I remember oh, I'm blanking on who it was, it was a coach, and might, might have been Tommy Heinsohn, one of those old grouchy guys who went up and pounded him on the chest, you know, when they meet and Pete had been ripping him or something, and said, you're the only guy who could get away with that because you know the game. Mm-hmm. And and that's Pete's stature. So mm-hmm. I'm, I'm very proud of the great career he's had. And your, and your father was in the business, right? Yes, he was indeed. Thanks for remembering that, Jamal. Yeah, my, my dad, uh, also George Vesey, although not senior, he got me uh, out to the ballpark when I was six years old, going to watch the Brooklyn Dodgers and have his field. And it, it was a great start to a career. I think I was telling you at lunch, Bill, about going out to the press box on that day, the first day I've ever gone. And what do I discover as a six-year-old going to Ebbets Field is that they have a press room. Mm. And I still can remember that my dad ordered me a Coke and the bartender, as bartenders do, slid it down this long, <laughs> and I'd never been in a bar. You know, it's a press room bar, and it was only men, and, you know, and there I am, a six-year-old, and now that was 46. 16 years later, I'm in the Polo Grounds, the first year of the Mets, mm. and I'm going up there now. It's a different ballpark, different time. I'm now covering for Newsday, and I go into the, in the bar there, and there's a little stocky guy, Louis Napolitano, a little boxer out of Brooklyn, and he slides the beard down the thing, and I say, wait a minute. I said, did you work in Ebbets Field? <laughs> and he said, yes, I was the bartender in Ebbets Field. Wow. Wow. So, so I've, been, I've been getting free drinks. <laughs> <laughs> Since I was six, uh, but you, you grew up in Queens. I did. Yeah, yeah you grew up in Queens. Well, Queens is uh, Brooklyn's the mothership, mm. and if you if you grow up in Queens, it was only right down the what, what used to be the Interborough, um, Interborough as we say in New York, and you'd wind up on uh, Eastern Parkway, and then you'd make the left turn on Bed. To this day, I was over at Medgar Evers College which, as you know, is right right next to where Ebbets Field was. Mm-hmm. And I went in there with a buddy of mine from the Times. They, they were putting on a little uh, seminar there. And to come down that hill on Bedford Avenue, I get this lump that there was a ballpark there, my first game. I, I actually got back, uh, never covered a game there except one college game later. But uh, to, to be in that, the physical part of it, the hill that goes down, um, Fred Wilpon, the owner of the Mets grew up, and his father used to get him in, sneak him in as a, you know, to the ballpark, and he'd get two tickets for twice a one or something. 
And we both say that whenever we're at the Botanical Gardens, which is a few, uh, just a little bit to the west, a right. block or two to the west of where the Evansville was, that your head turns like, like on a magnet, like the, toward the North Pole, mm-hmm. and that, that the, the peel of that ballpark, what mm-hmm. went on there, you know, Fred's my age, and the idea that there was this place, I mean, his pal Sandy Koufax wound up pitching in the last couple of years in Ebbets Field, that his, 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 um, his career was starting there, but the fact that there was a ballpark and it meant so much to us in New York and to us who were Brooklyn Dodger fans that um, you, 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 can't, you can't look at the flowers in the Botanical Garden or you can't go to the Prospect Park Zoo without like twitching to, uh, in that direction. That's where it was. Right. Yeah, That's where it, was. it was right there. Evansville is a, just a couple of blocks to the east of the Botanical Garden. Oh, what, Washington Street, and then you go a couple right, of blocks. Right, Bedford, Washington. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, I know it as just apartment buildings. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and there is a, a, a trophy there, a plaque somewhere in that complex. Right. And then across the street, there's the Jackie Robinson Intermediate School, Jackie Robinson Junior High School, and a guy named Marty Adler was the assistant principal there. Great guy. He passed a couple of years ago. And Marty started the Brooklyn Dodger Hall of Fame out of that junior high school where his principal let him do it. So he was the, the leader of the Brooklyn Dodger Hall of Fame until until the day he died. Hmm. Tell, tell me about, um, uh, now I live on Edgecombe Avenue, mm-hmm. right next to where the Polo Grounds uh, used to be. I get I get a lump going up the Harlem River Drive. Yeah, Same we, thing. Did, did you go down those, you know, the steps, those steep steps that go down? I never did. The, I never did because I would always be coming up from Long Island. I'd get off the um, Triborough mm-hmm. and I'd go up the uh, Harlem River and then I'd get off on 155th Street and they had a little parking area. Now it was only two years that the Mets were in the Polo Grounds, but there was a parking lot on the north side. The only time, I mean, you'd know that Coogan's Bluff is up there. Right, right, You right. could see it. I mean, that's Manhattan now and you know, you, you know you're in the borough of Manhattan. And I remember one time, I don't know why I did this. I was working for Newsday. I was just a kid, you know, 22, 23 mm-hmm. years old, covering these games. And I went out in the stands, and there was a little kid from the neighborhood named Kevin. I still remember the name. And he was just, I, how he got in, uh, you know, but he's, they didn't sell out. And I just remember talking to him and writing a column about from the perspective of a, of a boy from the neighborhood going in on an afternoon game in the summer, watching, uh, you know, Jay Hook and Roger Craig and Alvin Jackson get lit up. Mm. But, but he was there. And I just remember that that was, the, that was the contact. But, no, I really didn't have too much contact with the neighborhood up on, uh, on Coogan's Bluff. Mm. It's hallowed territory. Oh, yeah. Well, yeah, because the Rutgers down there. But every time I walk over the bridge— because I, I live in Fort, well, I shouldn't say where I live, because, you know. Yeah. No, no. But, but, but I live right there, oh, yeah. Uh, but um, these are what's rolling, this is rolling on sports. These are friends, I'd imagine. But, um, but I live right there in the building uh, on Edgecombe Avenue. Mm-hmm. And every time I walk over the bridge, over the, um, the one, uh, what's it called, the, uh, um, the, the uh, 155th Street Viaduct. 155th is, is right. just below Yankee, Yankee Stadium. Stadium. Right. Yeah. Right. And I, every time I walk over that, I'm always looking at the polo, I mean, I'm like, I wonder what that looked like. I wonder what the polo, and, and one time a guy who stopped me, he was older, and he was like, oh yeah, well, you know, Yankee uh, home plate was there. And actually, I went down there, and they, they've got a plaque. They've got a plaque down there saying, uh, Willie Mays, this is where Willie Mays stood. And and um, the first time I really connected with Mays, 
I told him where I lived at 409. He said, oh, yeah, yeah. I used to live right in back. He used to live right there on St. Nicholas Avenue. Is that Sugar right Hill? Back. Yes, it's Sugar uh-huh. Hill. He, lived, he said, yeah, I live right in back. There was a uh, club on the corner. Then there was a uh, pharmacy. And, and, and he lived on the first floor. Mm-hmm. The kids would knock on his door, his window. And he'd come out and he'd play stickball with him. <laughs> and then, you know, then he'd take him to the corner store to get him a, a, um, a soda. And then he'd go back, change, and then walk down to work. And I'm thinking, you know, can you even imagine no. that kind of stuff now? You know, where guys, I mean, these guys are like, if you saw Jeter or something, it would be like. He's in a gated community somewhere. Yeah, yeah. You know, actually, Jeter lived in uh, on the yeah, east side. On the east side. Mm-hmm. And uh, he, he would go out. But it, it New Yorkers are pretty cool that way. They don't necessarily fuss over people the way, right. you know, I mean, in Europe, the soccer player, that's why they love coming to America because they don't get fussed over the same way. But New Yorkers are pretty cool. They won't, they won't go. Um, Steve Jacobson, my, my probably closest friend in the business that we came along together at Newsday, he has an apartment in the, in the east side somewhere, and he was out for dinner with his wife, and Jeter was a couple of tables over. This is now when, it, when, when uh, Jeter was still playing. Mm. And they, you know, they don't necessarily know each other real well, but they know, each, you know, they know, right. they know who each other are. And at the end of the meal, Jeter comes by and touches Steve on the shoulder and says, how are you doing? And that's New York. That's right. that's cool. Right. And he also understood that Steve hadn't gone over and interrupted. I don't even know if Steve didn't even mention if, if he was with a woman or not. It doesn't matter. But the point being that that Jeter knew that he'd been allowed to have a meal uninterrupted in a public place, and that's that's the way it works here. Yeah, which right. is very interesting about about New York, yeah. is that there's this sort of because on every block you you may see people, but it's almost this rule that you just don't bother people. Right. Yeah, you say hello. I've seen, uh, uh, walking by Penn Station years ago, there's Christopher Walken coming down. And so, yo, Christopher Walken. You know, hey, right. you know that's the way it is. Uh, I was with some Brazilian guys walking down. They were making a, they were filmmakers, and they were doing a World Cup film, and I was having lunch with them, and blah, blah, blah. We're walking down the street, and the young guy in this group taps me and says, Danny Glover. And, 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 and Danny Glover. And Glover just waved. But right. that's, that's New York. Right. Yeah. How did you, um, there's so much, that's the thing, you know, when you have somebody who's been in the business as long as you have and I have, there's a lot of territory to cover. I'm trying to think, well, what's the starting point? When I was going through the clips, you know, there was a religion writer and all that, but that's your time, that's that's when you got to the time. But before mm-hmm. that, you, you're, you're, you're very, you started off, uh, you didn't. You didn't start a Newsday, right? What was your? What was I, your no, well, I, I started at the Associated Press. And, and you went to Hofstra, by the way. I, I want. I want to shout, give Hofstra a shout. Well, please, out. Went, please do. To, I, I got. I got my career. I met my wife. Um, took me four years to somehow or other con her, and then <laughs> and then and then I got. Um, I got a good education. It mm-hmm. was a wonderful place. I have great debt to it. And their basketball team is is looking pretty good this year. So yeah, I haven't. Keep, uh, keep an eye on them. Yeah, no, they're they're good. The Isn't the there coach. Speedy Claxton play. Yes, it is indeed. Mm-hmm. The coach uh, Joe Mahalik comes from uh, came from Niagara. Brought two of his boys with him, which is kind of cool. Um, and and they are playing very well. They they, they kind of the team rotates around them. But he's very nice about it because I. I don't know whether it's like that with Bill and Jamal. Did you play sports? I, I don't know. Do you play in college or high school? I played Division three, but I played in college, oh. yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. then, the people I like the best, aside from my wife, were athletes mm. at, at college. And we have a little group of basketball and baseball players because I was a student um, assistant. I was a PR 
uh, undergraduate assistant, making a few dollars a week at that. And these guys, classic student athletes, they did very well. As one of them is a Pulitzer Prize winning poet, Stephen Dunn, you know, shoot from the outside, they called him Radar. Um, <laughs> my, my friend is an endodontist, a buddy of mine, um, Teddy Jackson worked for the state, um, you know, as, a, as, a, as an officer, official of the state, and they've had good careers. So when you get back together and, and you tell stories that there's nobody, I mean, the ones that, that don't feel good about themselves don't come back. But I have great feelings about Hoster, so uh, I'm, I'm very proud of it. Yeah. Did you know um, uh, when you were a kid, you know, when you were, I don't know, 12, 13, did you know that you were going to get into journalism? Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, you did? My, oh, well, well, because of your dad, right? Because you, you of my no dad yeah. and because I was uh, f- I was hearing gossip from him. I mean, not only the game when I was six, but he would tell me inside stuff, who was going to cover the Dodgers, who was coming back from the war and was going to be given, given this beat. And, uh, you know, I've known Dick Young, the, the great baseball writer um, and kind of a character later on, but he was my hero when I was young because he wrote such great stuff about baseball. And I always was going to do it. And it's like if you can only do one thing well in your life, you'd be smart enough to to use that skill, which I was as a writer. I mean, I don't know that I could have done anything else. I don't, <laughs> I don't know what I would have done if I hadn't gotten really lucky in a, in a business that still had plenty of jobs. Yeah, so well, many newspapers, yeah. so many jobs. I mean, this world today, anybody that wants to be a, you know, a traditional sports writer or reporter – it, it's so tied in with tweeting and twittering and uh, you know putting stuff out there and you you have to have a camera with you you got to be a YouTube guy you got you, you got to be electronic seven different things in the old days you could go and cover something take notes and peck it out on your typewriter and I, I, I hate to sound like an old guy but that's the business and there were lots of jobs what were the newspapers how many what tell me the newspapers that that existed. Uh, and give me the years when when well, uh, what, what, there was a, what well there, it was the Daily News which is still right. hanging on <laughs> there was the Mirror which was a Hearst image of of the uh, the Mirror was well chosen because it was an image of the Daily News mm-hmm. and those are the two tabloid morning there was the Herald Tribune which was a really good paper but starting to look really thin by the late fifties Red Smith was there then you had the New York Times with you know, Arthur Arthur Daly and other people, Dave Anderson came over. Then the afternoon, when, when we had real afternoon papers, these papers would come out in the afternoon with stock market reports and all that, and you had the, the extra, extra, yeah, exactly, the Journal American, the World Telegram and Sun, and the New York Post, which was a a 180 of this post. It was a left wing, mm. bleeding hearts, and that was my paper. When I talk about the Post today. You know, I, 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 it's, it's not it's, like that anymore. It, it's a, it, yeah, exactly. It's at arm's length. It's been, it's been Murdochized. But but when I think of the post, I think of uh, you know Max Lerner and Milton Gross and Leonard Schechter and you know people like that. It was a different paper, mm-hmm. and 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 just the name only the name remains the same. But then you had in New Jersey, you had the Newark Star Ledger. Um, and the Newark News and other papers, and then in Long Island you had the Long Island Press, where my parents had met mm. back in the in the mid to late thirties, and then you had the uh, Newsday, which had just started up in the late thirty nine or something like that, and I was just lucky. I mean, Newsday was getting—I don't know if you remember how thick and fat Newsday was yeah. with their great big black headlines and. 
um, ads all over the place, and they were just hiring people everywhere. All these people from the city were flocking out there to work at Newsday. You know, Stan Isaacs and Bob Caro and uh, Mary Pangalos from Jamaica High School became a foreign war correspondent. I mean, there were just so many great people who came out from the city to to work at Newsday. So it was really bustling. I mean, I, I mean, the whole scene, the sports scene, was bustling, right? I mean, there was obviously Yankees, Dodgers, Giants. Uh, the football, the football giants were playing in Yankee Stadium. Right. Um, I mean, it was just the Knicks. Right. Were playing at the, I guess, the Old Garden. The Old I mean, Garden. <clears throat> yeah, college basketball yeah, at that right, time. Yeah, college right, basketball. right up from here, the Old Garden, about two blocks over to, on on Eighth Avenue. I still get a lump. I mean, you're old enough. I'm old enough to go by all these places mm. where there used to be ballparks, and but I can't go by. The, the old garden between 49th and 50th uh, on, on 8th Avenue without seeing the marquee. And then, as a friend of mine will say, remember the hot dogs at Needix. Yeah, oh boy. So there's Landmark. Welcome to Play It, a new podcast network featuring radio and TV personalities talking business, sports, tech, entertainment, and more. Play it at play.it. Do you, do you feel, um, I guess you feel nostalgic about that, but... Uh, when you were talking about the, the um, you know the electronic age now, and you've got to be able to shoot it, but even when you entered the business, you know I always joke with Oscar Robertson because he's saying all oh, these young guys, this is Oscar. When you entered the NBA, the old guys were saying the same thing about you. They were saying, you know, th- th- at every generation, they were w- and they were complaining about you guys. You mean as players? Well, yeah, you know how players like, would be <clears throat> complaining about young guys. Go, yeah, Oscar. I'm sure you know even even the the. Older black players who'd gone through the first would have said, "Well, that Oscar, he's kind of got a hard edge to him. Why is he so cranky? Look what we had to go through." Right, and, exactly. and I'm sure there's always a generational right. thing. And what I was going to ask you, even that, when you broke into the business, what was the new thing in journalism? In other words, when you were when you were coming in, you know, there there was still uh, there's a level of journalists who are like 5, 10, 15 years older than you, what was the new thing? Well, there's always old guys and young guys. Right, always. And that's that's the way it is. And so the old guys who would would write about baseball games like it was, you know, World War II. You know, they'd write about like it was, uh, you know, um, chasing... Chasing Rommel through the desert or something, you know, and then and, 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 and we'll say that kind of yeah, stuff. Yeah. And the Yankees <laughs> scored two runs, and you know, it was all play by play, but it made, they made it sound more important than it than it was or elevated. And uh, so I came along in the era of the chipmunk. Now we, right, we, yeah. we we were called chipmunks because we chattered a lot. And uh, it's apparently Jimmy Cannon, whom I admired. I just loved him. He was a character. But apparently he saw a bunch of us chattering off in a corner of the press box or, or the press room. And he said, look at those guys. They're chattering away like chipmunks. And uh, it, the, the name stuck, and we were very proud of it, of course, because we were the uh, psychologists. We would go up and ask psychological questions, you know, uh, of, of how did you feel when the when the pitch got away? What do you mean? How did I feel? <laughs> you know, so you started of, that, right? Well, you know, I was in that wave. I mean, I took my cue from people a little who, bit who, older who else, than me. Who else was in that? That, that um, well, Stan Isaacs was sort of like the the figure of chipmunkery, in, because he once asked a question. This is, this is well known that Ralph Terry had just had his first child. He was pitching for the Yankees in 1962, and he mentioned it that he was on the phone, the clubhouse phone talking to his wife out in Kansas and his, he said, you know, my wife is feeding my, my child and Stan Isaac standing right there taking notes says, breast or bottle? <laughs> 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 and, and 
Ralph, being a good guy, said, you know, whichever it was. And, and to this day, if, if I would see Ralph, Ralph somewhere, he, you know, he's a great guy, I'd, I'd, I'd mention it to him. But that's, that's a classic. We were always looking for the, the, the next question to ask. And you'd ask Ralph Hauk a question after losing a doubleheader, and he'd, you know, spit tobacco juice on your shoes. And yeah. it, was, it was like open warfare. So the old guys thought we were idiots. Because what along. were they doing? What were, the, what were the older guys doing? They weren't asking those kind of questions? Well, or? you know, they didn't even go to the clubhouse. Until, really? Dick, until Dick Young came along right after the war, and he started to trail, you know, Jackie Robinson and Pee Wee Reese around in the clubhouse and, and, and ask them questions. And some of the guys talked. Most of the, the, the Dodgers were afraid of him, and they didn't want Ricky mad at him, so they'd, they'd have to talk to him a little bit. Not that, not that Robinson was ever afraid of anybody or trying to please anybody, but Young would go to the clubhouse and would get stories. And so finally the sports editors in New York, the, the writers would write their story after the game, and then they'd play cards up in the press box. So they'd be playing gin rummy, and Dick Young was going down having, uh, you know, Jackie Robinson say, you know, they ought to they let me play off first base a little bit more. Or, you know, I'm going to play second base. Next, you know, whatever it was, the scoop was, Young would come up and write it. So the sports editors said to the other, these schlubs, you go down there and you follow that guy around. Mm. So, so they—that's when writers start to go to the club. Hey, what you give us the years? Give us the years. Well, that would be. Young came back from the war in '46. He had covered, I think, the Giants before the war. Came mm. back and and he covered the Dodgers starting in '46, um, the start of the dynasty for the Dodgers. They they tied the Cardinals and wound up playing, having a playoff and losing it. But that was the start of, uh, I think it was. Five or six, seven pennants in in ten years. So did you did you guys? Oh, go ahead. Uh, no. So speaking of how the how the players were covered back then, when you look at it now, what do you like and what do you dislike about the way journalists cover the players or the questions that are asked, et cetera? Yeah. Inevitably, there were so many of us, and then the electronics. People would come along with tape recorders and, and microphones, and then you had clusters in. In uh, 1961, I covered the Roger Maris's race for 61 homers, mm-hmm. and I would be, we, we, we were 10, 12, 15 people, a little knot of people going up to Roger Maris and saying, you know, how come you didn't hit a home run today, or how do you feel, or is your hand hurt, you know, the, the, but he, was, he knew us, he was sarcastic. Uh, the pressure only came the last couple of weeks of the season mm. when more people came in from out of town. But really, for most of the season, there was you know maybe one beat guy and one columnist from seven or eight papers. So he was used to um, a little knot of people, and he knew he could handle us. If he was grouchy that day, if he was funny that day, we said, oh, that's Raj for you. But nowadays, since the electronic age, it got divided. Generation later, Keith Hernandez would come and give his general state of the game talk after the game, and then he'd say, print media only. So mm-hmm. all the guys with the tape recorders, or even the, the print reporters had to turn their tape recorders off, and then Keith would say something like, I love Kid, meaning Gary Carter. I love the Kid, but geez, why can't he hit the ball to right field with the runner on first base or you know or or second base to move him on why can't he why can't this and he would he'd be teaching us stuff and we would generally you'd have to say protect him in that you didn't he didn't he didn't want to get but he wanted to tell us what he thought was mm. really going on now reporters and everything not just sports but you learn to to balance your sources if somebody's 
telling you things, you don't hang him out for the one thing that he does necessarily, unless it's real hard news you need to. But there was that sense of the in crowd, but we were writing good stuff. We were under, we were getting the game right. Of course, you'd go to Carter and you'd go to other people to ask about stuff. What's changed is that now everybody has to be twittering all the time. So I go to the press box, and in the old days you'd have Dick Young yelling at Maury Allen. You'd have Barney Kremenko talking about where we're going to go out for dinner. You know, we would all be talking to each other. It was a social occasion. We'd be watching the game carefully because the playbacks were Now everybody is with their two thumbs. They're thumbing away, to, to, and nobody talks. So the, the, it's like qu still quiet. And once in a while, somebody will pick up his head. These poor, <laughs> like, like they're locked into their, their like their you know, slave labor or something, and they're locked into their chair. And somebody will pick his head up and say to his buddy, good one. Meaning <laughs> the, the guy had a good Twitter out <laughs> right, there. Right. And, and, but there's no interchange. And I'm thinking like, you know, what's wrong with all these people? So now I'm the old guy, right. and the press box is absolutely no fun ever. And I even I, I don't go back much anymore because I'm retired. But the you, idea you retired in what year? Uh, the end of 2011. Okay. And uh, it, it's just it's just a different world. When mm -hmm. people start to tell me, and and Bill, you know, because we we had the same sports editor and the same people, and they knew where the business was going. They were. And, you know, imperfectly trying to drag me kicking and screaming into the, the electronic uh, age, the, uh, the, the the Twitter age. And I resisted. And so, but you come along and suddenly you realize, okay, I better rush, even though the print deadline is until 8 o'clock um, and they want it at 4 o'clock, um, I'll do it because that's the way the business is going. Yeah, so, just, yeah. So it took me, it took me a while but by that time, I was a grumpy old guy. <laughs> I had two questions. I want to ask you about the, the times and religion and all that. By the way, you know, producer Pat comes and tells me that we got to get out of here at 4.30. So this is part one of George Vesey. We're going to do part one, part two, part three. We're just going to keep going on. So whatever we don't get today, we're going to come back. But two things. When you were saying all this, what did you guys think? I mean, there clearly were no black guys in the in the press box. I mean, there are very few of them now. You know, what did you guys, did you ever talk about that? Like the fact that, you know, you just you didn't see any black folks, black journalists. in the I know that, that probably people knew Sam Lacey and the Pittsburgh and all that, but did you guys ever talk about that, just the lack of black folks in the press box? To my great sadness, I didn't even get to know Sam Lacey mm -hmm. and uh, the wonderful guy in Chicago. I want to say uh, Smith. Wendell uh, Smith. Wendell Smith. Yeah, yeah. I met his wife when I was doing a book on the Harlem, a kid's book on the Harlem yeah. Globetrotters, but I didn't really get to know <coughs> that end of it. Uh, all right, this is a Jackie Robinson story. Mm -hmm. In 1966, we at Newsday, you know, like ballplayers, you have different we's. So we at Newsday were going to do a, a long piece on why there are no black managers. We're pretty liberal. We're ahead of the cutting edge of, of even the New York papers in that. So I arranged to call Jackie Robinson at home, and he knew I was going to call. He knew that somebody from Newsday was going to call. And respectfully, takes the call, and I say, uh, Mr. Robinson, I'm working. He's my hero. You know, I loved the Dodgers, and he was certainly was top end. I said, so I'd like to know why are there no black managers? And he said, let me ask you a question. <laughs> how come? How many black reporters are there at Newsday? 
And my answer was, uh, none, sir. Mm. And then he went off. He went off like Jackie <laughs> Robinson could. Well, and he had this high-pitched voice, and he's screaming at me. And, 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 but he was, you know, he was making the point that you're calling me, and your business is just as bad. Mm. And lesson well taken. Um, I'm not taking... Well, I'm telling the story, but I, I have a friend who was working at a paper or, or at a wire service somewhere else. I recommended him to a place in New York. He still reminds me, and I, I won't name names, but when I see him, he says, you got me to New York. And there were people who were pioneers, Al Harvin. Yeah, that's right. How he got to the Post, where if the Amsterdam News was mm. before that, mm. and then he came over to the Times. I mean, the only guy I knew... And actually, there had been the times it had a guy named Bob Teague. Do you know the so, name? Oh, yeah, I know Bob Teague well. Robert L. Teague. Yeah. He played, um, uh, he played football at Wisconsin. <laughs> he was a quarterback at Wisconsin. Yeah. And he was covering, and he was the most buttoned-down, <laughs> non-jive guy you could imagine. Right. I mean, he was straight, straight-laced. And That's he'd come right. into the press box, and my, my boss at Hofstra, he'd come out to cover a Hofstra game. My, my, my boss would address him as Cat. <laughs> Cat. So, so okay, okay. <laughs> but there's Bob. There's Bob too. And, and it was it was like it, it, that's what the business was. I mean, mm. everybody who was I mean, women, blacks, uh, Latinos were were oddities, the rare bird or or non-existent. But bit by bit, I went away for ten years. I was out of sports for ten years, 1970 to 1980. Covered Appalachia. Lived in Kentucky. Covered coal mines. Um, then I covered Long Island for a while, New York, politics, other stuff. Then I covered religion for four years. So I came back to sports in 1980. Not mm. only were there African-American reporters, but there were women, um, uh, Claire Smith right, right. and uh, Chris, Chris, the great Christine Brennan, and mm. people like that were going through. You know, They were the first wave. They were the second wave terrible stuff that they had to go through. Claire having to stand outside the San Diego Padre locker room uh, because three of those born-againers wouldn't talk, mm. to, talk to her mm. in, in the locker room. And I remember Rich Gossage and uh, Garvey, Steve Garvey, came by and saw her outside and said, what do you? she said, they won't let me in. And I remember big Rich Gossage saying, it won't happen tomorrow, <laughs> and it didn't happen tomorrow. Uh, but uh, but those were the days. People had to go through their struggles. Mm -hmm. what, what year did you get to the Times? And you, you mentioned that stretch uh, where you got out of uh, sports. What year? Sixty-eight. You, you got to the Times in sixty-eight. And, and you know, from from working there, they liked you to move around. They mm -hmm. like you to work in in different departments. So I did two years as a as a baseball reporter. Had great time running around. And then at the in the middle of the 1970 season, Gene Roberts, who's one of the, you know, I, I probably would say the best journalist I ever worked for, um, he had covered civil rights and he covered Vietnam, and now he was the national editor. He sent an intermediary around, but the message was, he's from North Carolina. He'd say, "I like the way you rot, mm -hmm. and uh, like you to tell some stories from another part of the country." And I was totally hooked mm. and uh, I went down a little on, hooked on on, on, on him and mm. what he was selling me mm. I mean everything he told me even you know as a reporter I was talking before about an editor but to have an editor of, a, of your section and now no no emails no cell phones I'm down in Kentucky and you know you need a phone to communicate with the office and uh, one time he said to me you know it seems to me talk very slowly said you you ought to pay more attention to coal. Mm. So 
I was going around to like coal mines and one blew up when I was about a mile, uh, an hour away and I happened to be the, one of the first reporters on the scene and his, his instincts for what were good stories were so good and I just had a great, it was the best job I ever had. Two years of covering Appalachia, living mm. in Kentucky. As my wife says, she lived in Louisville and I lived in Hazard or Hyden and Eastern Kentucky. It was nuts, but mm. I, I had a great time. Was was that when? Uh, how did you meet Loretta Lynn? I mean, how did you? How did that whole thing? Through that coal mine disaster, um, this mine blew up on uh, December thirtieth, nineteen seventy. I just happened to be in the neighborhood, run over there, and uh, stayed about five days. Got caught in a snowstorm and all of that. But Loretta ran a benefit she came in off the road and I knew her I, I kind of like country music from okay. way back and she came in off the road wherever she was came into Louisville played at Freedom Hall played a benefit to make money for the Witters as we say in Kentucky to make money for the Witters so that they, they could send their kids to school and college. It, was a, it was a school fund for them and uh, I ran to this county judge who was like the county executive from down there and he was hung over the next day I ran to him on the road somewhere he's having coffee in this place and he said oh Loretta she came in off the road and she made a lot of money for my people down there and I, I just realized I had such immense respect for her that mm. she would bring her whole band in at her cost to, to do this. So I made an appointment. It took me about six months, but I finally got to interview her, and we hit it off. Mm. This is people know this story, but when it came time for her to do her biography, her autobiography, she immediately went to the best person that she could think of to do the book, which was Pete Axnell. Mm. He had done a piece for a, a cover piece for Newsweek, and Ax didn't feel like doing it <laughs> he just was busy he had a lot of stuff going on he was a talented guy he had a million things going on and he said no nah, i can't so they came to me i did the book mm. and years later i'd see acts at you know belmont or churchill downs and he'd come over to me and say wow that was great career move on my part <laughs> I mean, he, he did fine he, he passed young but just you know we we understood that you're a cowboy you you know sometimes you get thrown and sometimes you go back on but uh loretta knew what she wanted and she you know she wound up having me do it and then they, you did the book um, did you know uh, and then they made the movie right they made the yeah. movie after yeah, yeah, yeah. That. did you know did you know when you wrote it that this was going to be like a big deal because I remember reading that back well, whenever you wrote it yeah I Cold it came out came out in 76 yeah yeah it was just after Kenny Burrow torched me at the Astrodome no <laughs> but um, uh, but did you know when you wrote it that this was, you know, because the, the thing the thing that's so interesting about your career is that as eclectic, like you said, you were out of sports. And I would, when people are asking me about the business, did you know, because I was a jazz critic at the Baltimore Sun and really didn't really start doing sports until I did a year at the Week in Review at the time. Then I went down to sports. But after that, I was into, and I just think that it uh, really helps, at least back in our, it broadens you a little bit. It just gives you different different sensibilities maybe not to just come up just in sports do you, do you oh absolutely uh, i'll answer your question first um you know people talk a lot about making a movie out of something mm -hmm. you, know, you, you hear that every day so i didn't believe it until it got done and the people that did it it was as as tom rickman the guy who wrote the screenplay mm -hmm. told me i got to meet him they were very generous they let me come around to the parties and you know the, the openings he said, it's one of the rare cases in Hollywood where the good guys win, mm -hmm. where a good idea doesn't get screwed up by, by bad money or bad mentality. He said, everybody was on, and we got through all the temptations to, 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 to 
cheapen it up. So, okay, so I was very proud of it. I still am. It's a great movie about America. Um, Oh, I'm blanking now. I was gonna, I was going to oh. segue over. Oh, to to um, oh. Uh, being diversified because oh, you, you to do, being diversified. Yeah, yeah. Uh, absolutely. Thank you. Trust me, I do that as a host. Well, I'm well, going to ask well, questions. Yeah, yeah. What the hell? Was Co- I yeah, trying to do two things at once. That's, that's dangerous. <laughs> but I was out of sports for ten years, mm. or not eight years, ten mm. years. Late in that, I was doing a magazine piece for the Times, a uh, Sports Monday piece for the oh, Times. Yeah, yeah. I was doing it on Tommy John. Mm. It was about 1978. I go out, I meet them in Seattle. The Yankees were in Seattle. John is great. I get stuff from the Dodgers, why they let him go. I get stuff from Steinbrenner. But I want to talk to the guy who catches Tommy John. That would be Thurman Munson. Mm. Now, I'd known Thurman Munson when he was a rookie. Surly, grouchy, grumpy before his time. Now he's got eight years in of being a grumpy major league (laughs) ball player. Everybody knew that Thurman is a pain. I went up to him and he recognized me. He hadn't seen me. He wasn't about to say, I haven't seen you around, you know, where you've been, what. But he says, I said, I'd like to talk about Tommy John. What, what kind of, you know, I, I don't have time. What kind of stupid question? Yeah, well, I said, Thurman, you know, you haven't seen me in eight years because I've been covering coal mine disasters and uh, um, revolution, assassination of the government, governor in Bermuda. I've been doing stuff in the, in the cities. I've been writing about serious issues and this is like a lark for me. All I want to do is know what it's like to catch Tommy John. <laughs> and it was like I'd held smelling salts under his nose. He's a smart guy. He's a bully. And he just clicked. And he said, oh, yeah, okay, no, he's got a great curveball, great this. Mm-hmm. You know, you can, you can call him uh, inside out. He just, but you had to, to hit him back. And by telling him that I'd actually seen bodies carried out of a coal mine, <laughs> right. that I'd seen where the governor of Bermuda got knocked off in his backyard on a Saturday night, you know, I knew that, and, and it it opened him up to the fact that, oh yeah, right, there is another world outside. What what? Um, so why did you come back to this make believe world? Um, I kind of reached the end of that beat, the religion beat. Mm-hmm. There was a uh, some bureaucratic stuff going on. They had a religion editor at the Times. No, <laughs> there you go. Uh, they had a religion editor who's a friend of mine, mm-hmm. and he he was secure. But I was sort of the general assignment guy, and all of a sudden they they jerked around with possibilities. I couldn't go. I, I want to go interview a guy who was organizing a um, uh, who was bringing politics and religion closer together from his church in Virginia, a guy named Jerry Falwell. Mm-hmm. And uh, I said, yeah, I had an invitation. Falwell said, well, come on down. Spend a, you know, I liked him. He was actually a pretty hardy guy. And he said, come on down. Spend some days. Listen to what And so I had it all set up, and somebody said, you can't go. And I said, why can't I go? And they wouldn't give me an answer. You know, classic bureaucracy. Turns out that they had isolated my job back into the Metro staff, and I wasn't included in a national budget. It was, Mm. I had no idea. It was just somebody's bureaucracy, and they had nobody bought to tell me. So meanwhile, I'm booking appointments with Jerry Falwell in in deepest Virginia. Mm. I had to blow, and you know, ultimately Mm. he got discovered by other people. Mm. But that told me that this beat was drying up. And then somebody named Leanne Schreiber, who was the oh, first yeah, yeah. female sports editor in the United States, a very smart lady. She invited me to lunch on St. Patrick's Day in the city, took me to an Afghan restaurant. And so, you know, you got to love somebody takes you to an Afghan <laughs> restaurant on St. Patrick's Day. And uh, she just said, why don't you come back to sports? 
um, write for a year or two, write about it like it's a theater, write about it like it's a short story, have fun, just just do it, make the section look a little bit. And nobody could have said that to me except her. Leanne was just the right person, the right time. Mm. I came back. Then she bailed out. As soon, as soon as she got me there, she went camping on Baja, California with some friends of hers, came back, looked around the sports department and said, you know, no more. <laughs> so, so she moved over to the book review and, uh, and, and left. But you know, I wound up with great people, had a great time. And so her wisdom was carried over. As long as she and the bosses of the paper wanted me to do it that way, it, you know what it's like to have the stamp of approval, to have your guys backing you up? As long as Abe Rosenthal and Arthur Gelb uh, were around, that was one of their guys from the paper, that to back you up, that you could just say, no, that's why I'm here, is to, is to give an overview, to, to give my, they, they know where my head's coming from. So I had, a, I had a great time with their permission for a long, long time. Hmm. Man, you know, we, we've got to, uh, my, my guest is the great George Vesey, uh, a former colleague, Sports of the Times, columnist, uh, author, um, just man of many, 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 many gifts. we got to have you come back. They're throwing us out the studio now, which is why are they doing this, Pat? I mean, we got you know, we, we, yeah. but anyway, okay, we won't, we won't argue with that. But uh, yeah, so, you got to look, didn't you? Uh, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you know, you, you get the high side. A, a note, anyway, actually. Yeah, anyway, yeah. Note. Okay. I'm not, I'm not causing any trouble. I'm going right now. Hey, well, listen, Taking George, my headset you, off. You, this is the only part one. You got to come back. We got because we haven't even got to like 1990 yet. We haven't right. even got to the decades of the 90s. Right. Right. So, right. so we got to. Uh, yeah. When they, when Sepp Blatter goes into the clink, I'll come back and I'll, exp- I'll explain FIFA for yeah, you. Yeah, we got we got to do FIFA. So and, 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 and with any luck, it all will happen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> hey, George, thank you hey, so much. My man. pleasure. This, this is great. This is just tremendous. Thank you. Great, pleasure George Messi. Uh, Jamal, it's uh, great to meet you. Man. Yeah, thank you very much. Another uh, edition of Bill Roden on Sports. You never know. So we will see you very soon, Jamal. Thanks again. Thank you. And uh, Pat, thank, thank you. Thanks for the note. And we will see you guys. God bless. Talk soon. Bye. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.